Colossians chapter 1. Continuing our study here through the book of Colossians, we'll be picking it up this morning in verse 12, and Lord willing, time willing, we'll get to right around verse 19. Hey, let's pray. Lord, good to be here this morning, thankful for the people you brought out on this windy day, and Lord, I pray that we can just now let our hearts quiet and just learn, just let the Holy Spirit teach, help us to listen. You know, we've brought the sacrifice of praise to give you the glory, and now, Lord, we just want to just enter into your understanding of how you want us to go out and live in this life, not to only learn about it, but to apply it in your name. Amen. If you weren't with us last week, we started our study in the book of Colossians, and we got through the first 11 verses. Now, one of the hard parts about going through a book like Colossians is this. It's considered an epistle. It was written to a person, or it was written to a location here to the church at Colossia. Always keep in the back of your mind that Paul wrote this while he was in prison, so it's considered one of his prison epistles. But here's the hard part. It's supposed to be read straight through. And so therefore, we have to chop it up because we have to do some here. We don't have time to do the whole thing in a row, obviously. That's hard because you lose the flow. Some of you weren't with us last week, so you missed the introduction of how we got to this point. So we're going to do 12 through 19 this morning. Some of you won't be with us next week to carry on this theme. So I encourage you this week, take some time, and read the book of Colossians. And I encourage you this week to take some time, read the book of Colossians in one setting. It's only four chapters. It'll take you maybe 15, maybe 20 minutes. Get the whole context of it. Read the whole book. And I really encourage you, when it comes to especially these New Testament little epistles here, read them in one setting so you can get the full idea here of what the Lord is trying to say. So we left off last week. We finished up with verses 9 through 11, and we talked about this great prayer, and we encourage you to take your kids' names, your grandkids' names, your name, anybody, your loved one's names, and put them into this prayer. Verse 9, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffer with joy. What a great prayer. Look at that last one, verse 11. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. And that's how he ended it. Encouraging to take once again people's names, put them in there. But you can see how it flows so nicely. Look at 11 again. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. Giving thanks See, that's the theme and we have to chop it up. So we're going to pick it up right there. Giving thanks. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness that conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of His sins. I want you to focus on a couple key words there. Qualified, verse 12. Delivered, verse 13. Conveyed, verse 13. And then redemption, verse 14. Depending on your translations, it may say qualified, enabled, delivered, rescued, conveyed, transferred, brought us, changed places, redemption, purchased us, literally bought us. That's why we're giving thanks. We give thanks, verse 12, to the Father because He has done these things. He's qualified us, delivered us, conveyed us, redeemed us. So that's why we give thanks. An unthankful, ungrateful person probably has a heart that hasn't been truly touched deeply by the Lord. Think that through one more time. An unthankful, ungrateful person probably has a heart that hasn't been touched deeply by the Lord. Because when you've been touched deeply by the Lord, there is this idea of thankfulness. 
There is, because you have to be thankful for what he's done. What has he done for you? He's qualified you, 12. He's delivered you. He's conveyed you. He's redeemed you. He's bought you out of slavery of sin. Wow, that's why we give thanks. But the problem is when you kind of get into this darkness of life and this discouragement and this depression, you don't see that. You don't see eternity. You just see the here and the moment and the now. I remember talking to a guy one time on the phone, and everything was just wrong. The world was against him, he thought. God was against him. Everything was against him. Everything. And I asked him, I said, are you a Christian? He goes, yeah. I said, have you been born again? He goes, yeah. I said, if you are a born-again Christian, you are saved, then you have a heart of thanks for what God has done for you. He goes, what has God done for me? I said, he has saved you. He goes, and what else? What do you mean, what else? That's not good enough? See, right there shows the heart issue. If that's, if that's the mindset, that no matter how dark your day is, I should be able to come into your life and say, listen, you are born again and saved in Christ Jesus. He has qualified you, delivered you, conveyed you, redeemed you, and you should stop and say, you're right. Thank you. Does it mean that I enjoy the circumstances I'm in? It doesn't mean that I like what's happening in my life at this moment, but I stop and I say, Lord, I am thankful because an unthankful, ungrateful heart probably hasn't been touched deeply by the Lord, and we want to walk in that thankfulness. 2 Timothy 3 warns us that one of the signs of the end times is people walking in unthankfulness, ungratefulness. Look around, that's what you see. You see a, a world that is very ungrateful, unthankful, and that's one of the signs of the end times there in 2 Timothy 3. If you like a little deeper study, I encourage you to go to Psalm 106, not right now, but just this week. Psalm 106 is basically a one-chapter review of the book of Numbers. And what you're going to see here is this. In Psalm 106, there's this theme that the nation of Israel was unthankful, ungrateful for what God has done. They were thirsty, he gave them water. They complained. They were hungry, he gave them manna. They complained. They wanted meat, he gave them quail. They complained. They complained about everything. And then what you see in Psalm 106 is this heart of ungratefulness, unthankfulness helped bring judgment upon them. God does not like an unthankful, ungrateful heart because we have to stop and realize what has he done once again? Qualified us, delivered us, conveyed us, redeemed us. So therefore, there's always something to give thanks to because of what God has done. First thing first, what has he qualified us with? He's enabled you. Think about that for a second. We give thanks, verse 12, because he has qualified us. We're all unqualified. We're all completely, utterly unqualified to do anything, and God is the one that enables us to do this. We have to keep that in the back of our minds. So often I hear excuses from people why they can't. Well, I really feel the Lord's laid this on my heart, and I feel like I should, but I can't. Why? Because I can't fill in the blank. Wait a second. If God has called you to do it, that means he's enabled you to do it, and that means he's qualified you to do it, and anything past that is just us making excuses. Because God is the one that leads us to do it. Let's build on this a while. Can you go with me to Exodus 3? Let's talk about an example here, Old Testament example of Moses, of a man that was pretty sure he wasn't qualified to do what God has called him to do. Exodus chapter 3. As you're going to Exodus 3, I think of the example in the book of Judges 6, Gideon. Gideon. God shows up and calls Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon stops and says, mighty man of valor? I'm from the smallest tribe, the smallest clan, the smallest family. I'm not qualified to do this, yet God did mighty things through him. Be careful of constantly making excuses. If God has called you, he has qualified you, he has enabled you. 
Take a look here at Exodus chapter 3, Moses. If you remember that Moses' story, it's pretty straightforward. It goes in 40-year segments, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in spiritual time out in the wilderness, and then 40 years of leading Israel. So what we're picking it up in is Moses right here in Exodus 3 is about 80 years old, and he has been in the wilderness for 40 years being a shepherd. God has now called him into ministry. And this is what's going on in Exodus chapter 3. God is calling him to something deeper. Verse 10, God speaking, Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So Moses, I have called you to go do this. And what an amazing task. Moses, you're going to go back to Egypt, where you were raised for 40 years. You're going to go back there, and you're going to lead millions of people out of slavery, and you're going to help set up this kingdom of God. That's amazing. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That's a legit question. Who am I? I just spent 40 years as a shepherd. I'm just out here in the wilderness and I happened to see a burning bush and I went over to see what was going on. Okay, that's a legit thing. So now it just kind of becomes this whole Moses making excuses. So then Moses says in verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? That's another legit question. So I show up and I say, Hey, I'm God's representative to set you guys free. And they're going to say, Who sent you? God says in 14, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. One of my favorite commentators said this, I am who I am, just think of that as always. That's what it means. God is always. Always has been, always will be. He just is. It's always. So there's not a beginning, there's not an end. He's just God. He is always. So good answer there. Well, fast forward a little bit further now to chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. Moses has another question, another excuse. Then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So now what happens in the rest of chapter 4, God says, well, here's some miraculous signs you'll do, Moses, to show this. Once again, more questions, just clarifying, right? Well, let's see what happens next. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So Moses' first thing is basically saying, I can't do this. How am I going to do this? Okay, who is sending me? How are they going to believe me? Now, verse 10, I can't speak. It's just excuse and reason and everything. Look what God says in verse 11. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I thou the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. So every time Moses comes with a reason, God always says, I got it covered. What are we seeing here? If God has called you, he will qualify you. If God has called you, he will enable you. So don't sit there and say, I know what the Lord wants me to do, but I can't, because there's nothing you can say after I can't, because that's just reasons of excuse. But what finally turns this? Verse 13. But he, meaning Moses, said, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. That's the real reason. Moses, I don't want to do it. I know you've called me, Lord. I know you'll ail with me. I don't want to. So look at 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. See, that's when God gets angry because there's not enough faith to trust that the Lord will lead and guide. There's not enough faith to say, Lord, if you've called me, you've also enabled me. You have to realize whatever God has called you to do, he'll give you the spirit and the power and the enabling to do it. Don't make excuses. If you want to make God angry, Know what your calling is, then make excuses on why you can't do it. God will call anybody, 
And whoever he calls, he will qualify to do it. He won't able to do it. I know this from personal experience. I've seen God call me to do things. And I've sat there and said, Lord, I can't. I can't. God says, I'll qualify you. I'll enable you. Because James, it's not you. It's the power behind you. It's me that's doing it. I, I mean, I think back to my first Sunday that, that I taught out here as, as the pastor. I remember back. You know, I, I've been coming out here for a few years and, and, you know, and served as an assistant in our gym for a while. And, and then Jim stepped down and I took over almost 20 years ago. So here it is. It's the year 2000. I am 22 years old. I have no idea what I'm doing. And it's my first Sunday to come out here as the church, as the pastor. And I remember we used to have a time of prayer up in that room. So we'd come out after that, and it was time to start the 10 o'clock service. So I'm coming out at 22 thinking, I don't know what I'm doing, Lord. But if you called me, whatever. And I'm trying to walk in this strength of God. It's nervous. What's going on here? And I remember came over and started greeting people. And the chairs were aligned a little differently at that time. And what happened was here in the front row, we had Carol and Virgil Light that we used to worship with us. So I went over to Carol and, you know, shook Virgil's hand, talked to Carol. And Carol got up and gave me a hug, gave me a bear hug. And it was one of those hugs that became really awkward. Like, you know, when you're supposed to let go of the hug and someone's not letting go of the hug. It's my first day as pastor. I can't let go of the hug. That'd be weird. So Carol's hugging me, not letting me go. And then she whispers in my ear. She goes, your zipper is down. That, that was my first experience as the pastor of the church. Is Carol Light whispering in my ear, your zipper is down. God qualifies us. God enables us because we are absolutely nothing. Please remember that. Anything that you do other than, Lord, I will go, I will obey, is an excuse. Because if God has called you, he has qualified you, he's enabled you. And not only that, look at the next one here in verse 13. He's delivered us. He's delivered us. He's rescued you. See, I think we forget verse 13 that I used to be in the power of darkness. I used to be a slave to sin. God has delivered me. He has rescued me from that. I heard a teaching this week on this, and the pastor said, never forget you are a child of light walking in the light, but also never forget at one time you were in darkness. Some of you that maybe got saved later on in life, you can remember being under the power of darkness. God rescued you from that. God delivered you from that. That's why we give him thanks. And not only rescued us and delivered us, verse 13, he conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. He transferred us, he brought us. He changed my location. I was in the power of darkness heading to hell. And God says, yeah, I'll deliver you from that. that is, that's why you give thanks. That's why you worship. You worship because God is God and he's amazing and powerful. You don't come in and say, oh, I hope they play the song I like. The worship's not about you. It's about what he's done for you, about just who he is. So therefore, when you stop and say, oh, I got nothing to be thankful for, what are you talking about? If you're born again and saved, you have been delivered from the power of darkness and you have been transferred to the kingdom of the son of his love. That's something to be thankful for. Never forget that. And not only that, 14, you have been redeemed. You have been purchased says in 1 Corinthians 6 that God has bought you at a price, and the price was his death. That's why we give thanks. So putting this all together, you see this beautiful picture of I am nothing, and God has qualified me, enabled me to do it. Oswald Chambers has a great quote about this. He says, all of God's people are ordinary people who have been made extraordinary by the purpose he has given them. That's a great thought. All of God's people are ordinary people who have been made extraordinary by the purpose he has given them. There is nothing special about us other than God has qualified, delivered, conveyed us, redeemed us. 
And we need to remember how low we are, how nothing we are, and look at what God has done. I want to put this into perspective a little bit. Can you go with me to Psalm 103? Psalm 103. The purpose of this point is not to bring us down to think of us as nothing. It's to realize how great God is and that we are nothing. It, it takes us to a deeper state of worship, not this despair of, oh, woe is me. No, no, no. How amazing is he? See, the problem is we start thinking about how awful we are. Yeah, we are awful. That's what makes him so amazing. That's why it's amazing grace that he would love us. Okay, Psalm 103. Remember back in Genesis, the Bible says that as man, we were created out of the dust. Talk about a humbling beginning. We're dust. And the only reason I have life is because God breathed life into me. So I'm just a walking pile of dust right now that has life breathed into me by God, and God can take that life at any moment at any time. He bought me. He created me. As we talked about last week, he owns me twice. He created me so he owns me, and then he bought me so he owns me. He so owns me twice. He can take my life at any moment. I'm just dust. We forget that, though. We start forgetting that, and next thing you know, we start thinking we have something to really offer the Lord. And we start thinking that we're really something, that we're important. And God constantly is trying to remind us of, wait a second, remember who called you, remember who enabled you. Stay in Psalm 103, but I just love this passage out of Jeremiah 9. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, not let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him glory, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. You want to glory in something? Glory in how good your God is. So take a look at this. Psalm 103. Let's start in verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Verse 14. He knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. I forget I'm dust. I think I'm something. Therefore, pride comes in. I think I'm great at this. I think I'm wonderful at that. And so what happens is pride comes in where God says, yeah, I remember that you're dust. Please remember that thought this week. You were created from dust, and you are dust. And the only thing you have to glory in is how good your God is. That's all we have. Look at 15. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. Its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. I'm dust, but God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is I am. He is always. And that's what makes God so amazing. So now back to Colossians 1. Putting this all together... Why do I give thanks? Because he's qualified us, delivered us, conveyed us, redeemed us. I am dust, I am nothing, and he still uses us. The problem is sometimes we become very familiar with our blessings. That's dangerous, folks. For anybody that's been married for many years, you know how you can become quite familiar with the blessings God has given you. Never take that for granted. Be very careful with becoming familiar with the blessings that God has. But why is this point so difficult for us to get? Why is it so difficult for us to convey this thought to the people in this world that are dying and going to hell? Because take a look at 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Well, you know what? I serve a God that's invisible. That's kind of difficult sometimes to explain. 
If God was in physical form and I could just show him off to people, it would be a lot easier. If you remember correctly, Thomas, that gets a bad rap in the Bible. We call him Doubting Thomas. I think that's a bad understanding of who Thomas was. I like to call him Honest Thomas because Thomas just said what everybody else was thinking. If you go read, if you want to, take this study one time and just go read all the quotes of Thomas from the Bible. He's the only honest one. And I love that about him. I tell you, every board needs a Thomas on it. Somebody's going to say, hey, this is what the truth is. So Thomas said, listen, I'm not going to believe unless I see it. Jesus shows up and said, Thomas, you want to stick your hand at my side? You want to see the nail pierce? You can. He says, Thomas, blessed are you because you saw and believe, but blessed are those who do not see and believe. See, this is the hard part. If I had the risen Jesus with me at any time where I would say, hey, listen, I want to tell you about the reality of Christ and who died on the cross, and they would say, well, I don't know if I believe that. I would say, hold on a second. Jesus, can you come here? But instead, I serve an invisible God. Now, is he really invisible? See, here's where it gets interesting. God is invisible, but yet Jesus is the word that became flesh. This is what I like about this. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says the Word became flesh. See, it says that Jesus was the Word. What do you think of when you think of a Word? A Word denotes an object, so therefore it, it labels an object. So when I say a Word, you know what I'm talking about. If I say tree, you can think of a tree. The Word shows that. God decided to show himself by sending Jesus, who was the Word, to show us the image of God. That's why later on in the Bible, I think it was Philip in John 14 came to Jesus and said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father because I am the image of the invisible God. That's an amazing thought to think about here that the word became flesh and dwelt among us as John 1 said. So therefore, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And look at that. He's the firstborn over all creation. Boy, that throws people for a loop. The firstborn of all creation. Some cults you run into, Jehovah Witnesses will try to teach you that Jesus was the first created being. They'll even retranslate John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Well, there's some problems with that. First off, just a couple of verses later in John 1.3, it says nothing was created other than it was created through Christ. So if Jesus was the first created being, then how could he have created himself? It doesn't work that way. Number two, that word for firstborn there is an interesting word. That means firstborn in the sense of priority, not chronological order. Jesus is the most important thing. He is the priority over all creation. We use this term in our present-day vernacular a lot, too. When we have a male president, we call his wife the first lady. Okay, now she's not the first lady. There's been billions of other ladies before her, so she's not the first lady. She's not even the first lady of the first wife of a president. We've had 40-plus of those before her, too. It's a term of priority. She is the first lady. So when it's the firstborn over all creation, it's not talking about the literal first created being. It is the priority over all creation. And if you get into the Greek, and I'm not an expert on Greek, but you can study that word out in the Greek, and you see that theme of it, that Christ is the priority of all creation. What else do we have about him? 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Folks, that's a powerful passage right there. And to unpack that's going to take some time. You need to chew on that this week. Just keep chewing on that. Because if you can get, if you can get 15 through 19, that will change your life. Because the theme is this: 18 is the key. 
in all things, he may have the preeminence. He may be first in everything. He may have the supremacy. He is the supreme. He is everything. And that's what it's trying to say. See, practically, verses 12 through 14, we give thanks to God because he has qualified us, delivered us, conveyed us, redeemed us. Now, in 15 through 19, we give thanks to God. Why? Because he is the image of God, the creator of all things. We were created for him, and he holds it all together, and he's the head of the church. That's why he gets thanks now. Break this down with me. We've already covered 15. 16, for by him all things were created. Christ is always. He is I am. He's God. He created everything. He created anything you see in heaven. He created the spiritual realm. He created everything. And not only created it, look at 16. All things were created through him and for him. I am created for him. I think one of the biggest problems we face in Christianity today is I think I was created to enjoy myself. I should get to do what I want, when I want, how I want, because I am my own God, little g. No. I'm created for the Lord, and I will finally find joy when I just really succumb to that thought and say, Lord, I'm here to serve you because I was created through you and for you. If you can remember that you're created for him, then all of a sudden your life is not your life. This is one of the problems, I think, in Christianity. We kind of teach this idea that make God number one in your life. No, I don't want him to be number one in your life. I want him to be everything in your life. What did Jesus say in John 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. I don't want him to be 51%. I don't want him to be the most important thing in your life. I literally want him to be everything to you. Absolutely everything. And when we can learn that he is absolutely everything, that will change how we live. It's more than just getting up in the morning and saying, God, I gave you 10, 15 minutes today. You're really important to me. God, I came on a Sunday morning. You're really important to me. I pray before every meal. You're really important to me. I even listen to Christian music because you're really important to me. I don't want him to be really important to you. I want him to be absolutely everything to you because you were created through him and for him. And look at 17. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. It literally means he holds it all together. And when you don't understand that, and when you don't put that into perspective, you still think you got some say in this. Have we not already established the fact that we're dust? It's all him. John Corson has a neat point about this. He says this. He says, some people car compartmentalize their Christianity like a TV dinner. They've got their recreation section, their relationship section, their financial section, their hobby section, and their Christian section. So on Sunday, they concentrate on church. Monday through Friday, they concentrate on money. Evenings on relationships, and Saturday on sports and hobbies. But ultimately, they find it frustrating and ineffective because God intended our lives to not be TV dinners, but chicken pot pies. All stirred together. In other words, when you're skiing, you're praising God for the beauty around you. When you're at work, you're to be praying, Lord, help me to use this as an opportunity to witness. When we're with family, we're looking for opportunities to serve. It's all mixed together. I love that. Christ is just not the biggest part of your life. He is your life. Let that sink in, and he then is everything that we do. Every action, everything you do goes through the lens of how does this glorify Christ because I was created through him and for him. Everything you do. Oswald Chambers has something about this as well. He says, if we have received the spirit of God, he will squeeze right through our lives as if to ask, now where do I come into this relationship, this vacation you have planned, or these new books you want to read? Oh, I like that. 
Where do I come into this relationship, this vacation you have planned, or these new books you want to read? So you're going to start reading a book. Christ says, okay, great. How am I glorified in this? You're going to go on vacation. That's wonderful. How are you going to take me with you to be a witness while you're on vacation? Okay, you got a new relationship. you got a new job. Great. How are you going to use me to glorify that? He always presses the point until we learn to make him our first consideration. Whenever we put other things first, there is confusion. Unless Christ is number one in all ways and all things, there will always be an element of confusion because you're really trying to fight this idea that you were created through him and for him. Now, if you're like us, there's always something going on. And you know, one of my pet peeves is I hate it when people say they're busy. Everybody's busy. Be busy about the Lord's work. If you ever want to come up to me and say, hey, oh, pastor, it's just a really busy season of ministry, I'll say amen. Be busy about that. But the problem is this. We get busy about things that have no eternal perspective or value in any way whatsoever. And we allow a calendar to control our lives rather than Christ. Now, does that mean those things are wrong? Not saying that in any way whatsoever. But taking what I read here in Colossians and what we read from John Corson and what we read from Oswald Chambers is this. Anything you do, Christ gets the preeminence. Anything you do. So therefore, you're going to sign your kid up for sports, you stop and you start praying already. How is God going to be glorified in this? How am I going to be a witness in this? You're going to change jobs? Hey, then change jobs. Because God, if you're leading me, I want to do it. How are you going to be glorified in this? Starting a new relationship with somebody? God, how are you going to be glorified in this? How do you get the glory? Because I'm doing this for you. You're going to go spend money? God, how do you get the glory in this? Because I was created through you and for you. And what happens is when we make commitments without seeking God's glory and we change jobs and relationships and do things, like we just read, whenever we put other things first, there is confusion. And there's times, I know in Donna Mine's life, where there's a lot of commitments and commitments overlap. And we have to stop and we have to say, what's the most eternal one? And we have to sometimes let things go. But yeah, but we signed up for that. It doesn't matter. That doesn't bring God as much glory as this action does, so we need to go with the one that's going to bring him the most glory. We need to keep that focus and perspective because we were created through him and for him. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Do we really believe that he holds it all together to the point of he's the head of the body, the church? He's the head of everything we do out here. Everything we do is supposed to be for his glory. One of my biggest pet peeves is when I see churches start really hitting that self-promotional thing. Man, if you're going to promote something, promote Christ. And if you're going to start running into what I call this, this rock star pastor mentality, we're going to promote a person. No, promote Christ. John the Baptist was a great example of this. He kept saying, I got to get out of the way and I just got to point people towards Jesus. Because he is the head of the body, the church. I happen to be the pastor. What a blessed calling that is, but it's really Christ's church. And we forget these type of things. This is Christ's church, and whatever we do, whatever we sing, whatever ministry we do, we have to stop and say, Lord, is this going to reflect glory to you? Is this going to be a witness for you? Because that's, that's what we want to do. Because a lot of times we get our focus on a person. I remember I was going through discipleship uh, with Richard and Betsy. It would have been back in uh, probably 94 or 95. So about 25 years ago, I was a new Christian. And it was Richard and Betsy leading the discipleship, and I was there, and there was a couple other families from church. And we were just talking about church and Christ and just Harvest Fellowship. Jim was the pastor at the time. And there was a, a new guy coming there, and he was just talking about the church, how much he liked it, and just how much he liked Jim and everything like that. And Richard started setting him up. And, you know, if you don't know Richard, he is 
ornery, sly, sometimes heathenish, you know, but he was uh, setting them up. And uh, Richard was basically saying, you know, that church out there, Harvest, you know, that's built on one man. And this guy's like, oh, I know, I just love Jim and loves the teaching style and everything like that. And Richard looks at him and goes, yeah, and that one man is Jesus Christ. And Richard said it with a smile on his face. I asked him, Richard was at the 830, and I said, do you remember doing that? And he goes, I don't really remember doing that, but it sounds like something I would do. That's, that's what Richard said. <laughs> Christ is the head of the body, the church. He's got to be the focus. He's got to be everything. And if, and if we don't make him everything, it's going to lead to issues. 18, he must have the preeminence. He must have, first in everything, the supremacy. Because he's God. Why would I want to look on something lesser? See, I think we misunderstand a lot when the Bible says that God is a jealous God. This is not a seventh grade jealousy mentality of I can't believe she's talking to him. What this is, is God is saying, I know all the junk in this world, so I'm jealous for you. I want you guys to keep your eyes on things that are good, pure, and holy, and that is me. And I don't want your eyes to go to other places and other things that it shouldn't. I want to have the preeminency, the superiority, first in everything. It's not because God has low self-esteem. Because God knows he's the best. And let's keep our eyes on him. Look at 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And to make sure this is repeated, look at Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness is in him. He, he's everything. So I, I just want to stop here as we get ready to close up. If you're feeling at all empty, is it maybe because you don't have the fullness of Christ? See, there's a lot of Christians that once again are under this understanding of God's really important to me on Sundays. He's really important to me for those 20 minutes in the morning. And he's really important when it comes to my, my Sunday to serve in the back. Man, I, I don't want him to be really important. I want him to be your life. Preeminence, supremacy, everything. And I will keep nailing this point to ad nauseum to make sure you get it. Because when you get it, that's when you'll finally have fullness. Fullness of life. Because Christ is life. So I encourage you this week. Colossians, it's four chapters. Read the book. Get the full context of it. But really spend some time in 15 through 19 and start to really get and say, Lord, have I really stopped and said, you've created everything. Everything was created for you. You are before all things. All things consist in you. You are the head of the body, the church. You are the beginning. You are everything. And you should have the preeminence. And only in you I have fullness. That's where the joy is going to come from. Any less than that, you're going to walk in an emptiness for a while. And I don't understand why we'd want that. Let's put him first in everything and see the blessing that comes out of that. And that's why we give him thanks in all ways. Worship team, we're going to come forward here for the final song. Hey, I got a lot going on. Thursday is Halloween alternative. Keep this in prayer. Great outreach to the community. 5.30 to 7 on Thursday. Next Sunday is the uh, Thanksgiving potluck. Bring a hot dish and a cold dish. Come out and share. Just come out and be blessed with the fellowship. We'd love to have you after the 10 o'clock service. We're in full swing of Operation Christmas Child. Church takes care of the shipping. Fill the boxes up. We will make sure they get sent out, and you will bless a child not only with Christmas, but most importantly with the gospel. Um, small groups starting up. I believe not this week, but next week. we got a group over in Milton Center. Thursdays at 7, we have a group in Hamler. Uh, Thursdays at 6.30. And then on Monday, November 11th, we're having a time of communion and just worship and prayer out here at church. Uh, 
they bring their own fruit. You know, this is why we love the small groups. So we have our regular small groups that meet throughout the week, but we try to stop a couple times here and do something special with the small groups. They're going to be going through Second Peter. Sign-up sheet information is back there to my right. So at this time, we'll give it over to the worship team for the final song. Let's go with the word of prayer.